Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Sometimes we need to leave home to understand its meaning. New York Times writer Eric Kim grew up in Atlanta and settled in New York City right after he finished high school. He was successful in college, and his writing talent landed him a job at the nation's most prestigious newspaper. Eric Kim is affable and charming, qualities that endear him to many viewers of his New York Times food videos. When COVID hit, Kim left New York to move back into his parents' home in Atlanta, and that time was transformational. The joy of cooking with his mother led to his recent cookbook, Korean American, Food That Tastes Like Home. The book is beautifully written and particularly moving as the author describes embracing his Korean heritage and American identity. We'll spend time with Eric Kim today on City Lights. But first, we're in the end. We're in the year-end fundraiser now, and we're asking for your donations because that helps pay for the cost of bringing you City Lights. And right now, we've got yet another reason to give. Here with Details is City Lights music contributor and host of WABE's Strike Up the Band, Dr. Scott Stewart. Hi, Lois. When you give right now, you're not only supporting WABE as we gear up for 2023, you'll also be entered into a drawing to win a $100 City Winery gift card. So please take a moment to give a year-end gift at wabe.org slash donate or give us a call at 678-553-9090. At the end of the year, we'd like to remind you of some of the stories we've been able to share with you, thanks to listeners' support, stories such as my conversation in March with six-year-old Kendall Ray Johnson, the youngest certified farmer in Georgia, and 
the expansion of our Speaking of series, which now includes Speaking of Music and Speaking of Comedy. It's a recurring series which spotlights local creatives in their own words. Now, to map out our future plans, we're looking for financial help from listeners just like you. Please lend a hand with a year-end gift at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Thank you. I'm Sarah McCammon, and before I was a national correspondent, I worked at three different NPR stations. I still visit colleagues around the country now and work with them to cover breaking news. Wherever you go in the U.S., there's an NPR station waiting for you. That's only possible because people like you donate. So support your home station now. Here's how. And here in Atlanta, your home station is WABE. We've been serving Atlanta for over 70 years and have been with NPR since the very early days. Your financial gift right now will move us forward. Please make your first ever gift at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Thank you. Think about making a gift to WABE the same way you would to a friend or relative. WABE is always here for you, and your one-time gift will really help us right now. We rely heavily on Metro Atlanta for support, not on subsidies or state funding. In fact, nearly 90% of our funding comes from Metro Atlanta. That's listeners just like you. Give for the reasons you listen at wabe.org slash donate or with a call to 678-553-9090. Thank you. And remember, when you give right now, your name is being entered into that drawing to win a $100 City Winery gift card. Incidentally, if you're listening to the evening rebroadcast of City Lights, we're also going to enter you into this drawing too. So be sure to give your gift as well at wabe.org slash donate, or you can call 678-553-9090. Thank you so much. Now. You may know Eric Kim from his popular cooking videos on the New York Times YouTube channel. He's a New York Times staff writer, writes a monthly column for the New York Times magazine. And we appreciate that Eric Kim takes pride in being from Atlanta. He grew up here when his cookbook, Korean American... Food That Tastes Like Home came out in May. Kim joined me via Zoom and explained what led him to embrace his Korean-American culture. Part of the journey of writing this book was realizing that I straddle these two nations, the United States and South Korea, and having to straddle your identity like that, it's a very it's kind of like holding tension in your jaw for your whole life. And then writing this book felt like releasing that tension and kind of giving out a big sigh. And it's about creating your own world, your own stage for yourself. And 
my hope is that this book sort of does that, not just for myself, but for other Korean Americans who've maybe felt a little lost. Because I think this book is about me finding myself, as cheesy as that might sound, but it's a book of self-discovery for sure. And I, I wanted to get that across because it was no small feat where one finds oneself, right? I think that's a big, it's a big deal for, for a young adult like myself. Sure. Yeah. You write that you've been running away from home your whole life. Would you talk about finding your way back to Atlanta? Yeah, you know, the first thing I did when I graduated high school was move to New York. I, I wanted to go as far away from home as possible. I had two options. I, I had been accepted to a college in Nashville, but also in Manhattan. And at the time, I actually wanted to be a, a pop singer. I was, <laughs> I held a guitar and I I kind of played the rock club circuit. And I think the main decision of moving to New York was that I wanted to play rock pop and not country music in Nashville. So um, <laughs> no one really knows this about me, but it's, you know, I've always known that whatever my creative interests were, that they could lead me to New York or somewhere more, more exciting than my quote unquote boring hometown. And of course it took moving back home during the pandemic and being with my mother and to kind of really realize how much I took for granted about Atlanta and how magical it was to grow up there. Because at the end of the day, Atlanta had a huge Korean American community. It was a very diverse neighborhood I grew up in. And where was that? Oh, yeah. I mean, Fulton County, you know, it was pretty. I lived among so many Asians. Most of my friends were Indian, actually. And I think about that, the diversity of not just various immigrant communities, but also types of people. And I, I learned a lot from these people, you know, and I, I think it takes going back home to as an adult and, and not just, you know, in that superficial way of going back for Thanksgiving or Christmas, it's really going back and living in the community again. That was a huge eye-opening pivotal moment in my life. And I really pay homage to some of the restaurants that really inspired my culinary tastes and my my predilections, you know, like the reasons we taste things the way we do and the reason we like certain things are often because of where we come from and what we ate when we were younger. And so this book sort of navigates that. And, and it's a real love letter to Atlanta, I would say. Definitely. <laughs> it was also very moving oh, to read you. your stories earlier in the pandemic, the stories about cooking with your mom, and you're a great essayist. Oh my God, Lois, you're the first person to ever call me an essayist, I think, and it's, it's, a, it's a title that I would like to occupy, you know, in a professional way. I, I, I guess I do write a monthly essay technically for the New York Times Magazine. It's a column, and the essay form is something I've always been so fascinated by, not least because you know, it's one of the first things you learn as, as a high school student or a college student, you know, when, when it's a homework assignment, it's an essay that's due and you got an A on your essay or a B or, and then later, later it becomes a personal essay and that's actually a literary form. And, and then I ended up teaching that essay form at Columbia when I was getting a doctorate there. And, and then I dropped that and then started writing more essays as a food writer. And my joke is that none of us ever really 
grow up and <laughs> life is just always school and you always have an essay due. Uh, just this time, like millions read it every not, month. So. Not, not bad. <laughs> and um, I'm glad that you want to own that title. And Eric, did you really watch food TV instead of cartoons when you were a kid? <laughs> yes, I, I did watch food TV at least at four o'clock to seven o'clock. That's, that's when the best food network shows were on. Rachel Ray, Tyler Florence was one of my favorites. Gail Gand had this dessert show called Sweet Dreams. What a what a dreamy show. When you, when I was like 13, that was a <laughs> really, that was a joy to watch. Uh, what were you learning as a child as you watched the Food Network? You know, I think the lessons were twofold. You know, first of all, I was learning basic culinary techniques, things like deglazing pans with wine. And I remember when my mom would start uh, <laughs> asking where the wine went. And I was like, I'm not drinking. I'm just cooking with it. But, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then I remember, you know, learning about pan sauces. It's just really simple techniques. I learned about bagged lettuce. I learned that you could buy salad leaves in a bag and you didn't have to wash them. And <laughs> yeah, that's good. I learned basic things about what to look for at the grocery store because these really weren't things that my mom was bringing home, you know, as a Korean cook. But the second fold, like the the things that I was also learning were about culture. I think I was, culture is relative, you know, and I think in that moment, I was realizing that our kitchen was very different from all of my peers' kitchens. And I think that was a really nice lesson because it opened up my world a little bit. I was like, I am Korean, but I'm also American. And I really want to know what avocados taste like. And <laughs> so I think that's how my curiosity started. The television really helped. And when I reported that story for the New York Times Magazine, I wrote about you know this generation of children who came home from school to watch the Food Network. And all of these sources were around my age. They were all, you know, I don't know, 28 to 32 years old. And I just think it's so fascinating that these are all people who are now really good cooks because of everything they learned on the television. Yes. It's fascinating. Yeah. So how did food and cooking help you fully realize or appreciate your identity? You talked about observing the difference in your kitchen, in your parents' kitchen, and those of what you saw on TV. I was especially intrigued with what you described as Reagan-era Korean <laughs> yeah. food. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I come from a very specific generation. I mean, we all do, but I think defining who my generation is was a nice moment in the book, which is, you know, we're the product of Korean immigrants who immigrated to the United States in the 80s and brought over the food from the 80s. So, you know, we grew up with very specific 80s style Korean dishes, you know, and, and then meanwhile in Korea, the 90s happen and <laughs> the aughts happen and food evolves, but I'm part of this generation where food kind of stood still and and so people think that Korean food is this one thing, but my whole argument is that food evolves. And we're also people who evolved that food from the 80s by using the ingredients we had around us. And I think that's really what Korean American is about. This book is trying to dispel that myth of authenticity in food like Korean food. I, I just think there's this impulse to want to define something like that. But 
what I'm trying to do is tell people that, you know, how you cook it is, is authentic to you. And that's what matters. And that's sort of what my book documents. And I think the greatest, I'll just say this, that the greatest kind of compliment is from someone who sees the book and flips through it and, and sees themselves in it. I love reading comments like that. I get messages and emails all the time from readers who are like, thank you for writing this. Like, I finally feel seen in a cookbook. And the person might not even be Korean. There may be like a child of Indian immigrants. I think that it just speaks a lot to how food media has been so whitewashed, frankly. And I think there's this desire now to tell real stories and tell the truth. And I, I, I'd like to lean into that. Yeah. New York Times writer Eric Kim from our conversation in May. His cookbook is Korean American, food that tastes like home. You can hear the entire interview on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, we'll pull some strings and get festive with the new exhibition at the Center for Puppetry Arts. But first, the reason we have a fundraiser like this is simple. We're looking for donations to help cover the cost of what it takes to bring you stories like the one you just heard with Eric Kim. Please take a moment to give monthly now at wabe.org slash donate. I'm Lois Breitzis. Join this hour by City Lights music contributor Scott Stewart. Thanks, Lois. And yes, as Lois just mentioned, we are looking to cover our costs. So we're entering you into a drawing to win a $100 City Winery gift card. So please take a moment to support City Lights and WABE with a year-end gift at wabe.org slash donate. My name is Debbie Markland, and we live in Roswell, Georgia. My husband and I kind of sit down typically in November, December, and kind of go through what charitable organizations we want to give to. And we typically pick out, you know, things that um, – our personal, you know, personally, that we're personally related to. So both of us actually at the same time both said, what about NPR? Because both of us agreed that it's something that we started listening to a lot more. So it was an organization we wanted to help. <laughs> I know we're just like, hey, well, I guess we're married, you know, we've had the same thought. Thank you, Debbie, for including WABE in your plans for the new year. It's always great to hear how people decide to include WABE in charitable giving plans, but you don't have to wait until the end of the year to make a gift. You can become a WABE supporter or even better, a WABE sustaining supporter anytime. It's simple to do, and you can even choose a thank you gift if you'd like. The point is, why wait? Become a supporter right now. You can give at wabe.org slash donate or by calling 678-553-9090. Thank you. And even if you can only give a one-time gift right now, that is fantastic. While sustaining monthly donations are best for us, they might be right for you right now. WABE is a nonprofit organization, and your donation is tax-deductible. So before the end of the 2022 year, give at wabe 
donate. You can also call us at 678-553-9090. Mercedes-Benz, eBay, CNN, and J.P. Morgan Chase are just a few of many employers in Atlanta that partner with WABE's matching gift program. These employers will match your support of WABE, in some cases, dollar for dollar. As we gear up for a new year, please check to see if your company is part of our matching gift program at wabe.org slash match. And remember, when you donate right now, your name is being entered into that drawing to win a $100 City Winery gift card. Since you're listening right now, why not make a year-end gift right now at wabe.org slash donate or with a call to 678-553-9090. With your year-end gift to WABE, we'd like to send you one in return. Choose from any number of gifts, including the I Love WABE mug, the NPR Kids Hoodie, or the new WABE Tumblr. Choose what you'd like based on the level of your gift. See all the December thank you gifts for yourself at wabe.org slash donate. Thanks. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Christmas movies and television programs, including A Charlie Brown Christmas, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, The Muppet Christmas, and the 1964 stop-motion Rankin-Bass production of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, are all part of the seasonal celebration. The Center for Puppetry Arts adds to the tradition with its festive feature special museum exhibition on view through January 8th and its beloved production of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Kelsey Fritz is the museum director at the Center for Puppetry Arts. She joins me now via Zoom. Kelsey, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and talk about what we're doing. Yes. Well, starting with, if you'd please tell us your role in the Festive Features exhibition. Yeah, so I'm the museum director at the Center for Puppetry Arts. So I run all of our museum programs, including exhibitions. So this year, we really wanted to pull together a 
nice, we, we called it festive features. We want to pull together a nice holiday exhibit to kind of complement our Rudolph stage production, which we also do every year. So in the past two years or so, we've acquired the Santa and Rudolph puppets from the original 1964 Rankin-Bass production of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which is really exciting just because in general, those are really important pieces to puppetry as stop motion pieces, but also the center does our stage production every year of, of the same, almost a shot for shot of the of the original film. So it was really special to have those in our collection. And so last year we just displayed those, but this year we have those original pieces, but we also have some pieces on display from Emma Otter's Jug Band Christmas, which is a um, Henson TV special that came out in the 70s, as well as some Ed Sullivan Muppety reindeers that were used in the <laughs> Ed Sullivan show. And for those of us who are 90s kids, Sabrina, the teenage cat in a, a reindeer costume from the 1990s CBS television show. So it's a lot, it's a lot of good nostalgia for across generations. Oh, yes. Now, in the festive feature show in the exhibition, the six-inch tall Rudolph and 11-inch tall Santa are handmade creations of the Japanese puppet maker Ichiro Komuro. How did this artist become involved with the project? Um, so that's a good question. So the Japanese production company actually worked with Rankin-Bass on um, several of their productions. So it wasn't just a one-off, kind of one-off partnership. But yeah, they're really detailed pieces. We're really, really lucky to have them. Yes. And you mentioned Jim Henson a moment ago. Kelsey, you were present at the museum for the Henson acquisition. Would you talk about that tremendous moment for the Center for Puppetry Arts and Atlanta? Yeah, it was a really special project I was uh, had the privilege of working on. So um, the Jim Henson legacy, um, which is kind of the arm of the Jim Henson family wanting to be able to distribute their father's collection of pieces. And so we were able to work closely with them kind of between 20, 2012 to 2015-ish. And they were distributing the collection and we were able to go up to New York and to look at their stuff in warehouses and be able to pick stuff to bring back to Atlanta which was just really exciting. So it was like every day was Christmas where you'd open a box and it would be like Cookie Monster or <laughs> other fun Muppets. And so at the time, the center was was during, it was a big period of expansion for the center. So um, we were actually storing our collection offsite at the Atlanta History Center. And so it was, it was just a lot of moving Muppets around. And then we were able to get everything conserved on site through kind of a combination of puppet builders that were trained as conservators and trained by art conservators. And so it was just, yeah, it was a really big process in getting everything restored and ready for display. This acquisition has to be one of the great achievements in all of the puppetry arts, is it not? No, it was a really big deal. And I think our founder, Vince Anthony, deserves a lot of credit for being able to get that here to Atlanta. He had a long running relationship with the Jim Henson family um, and with Jim himself when he was still alive. And um, I think something that people don't know about Jim Henson is that he really cared about the broader puppetry community, not just film and television. So he was involved in things like Puppeteers of America and kind of these larger 
international festivals and was really, really a great supporter. Um, and his family continues to be a great supporter of the puppetry community broadly. And so it was a, it was a big deal for us to get it. But I, at the same time, I think we were also a really natural home as the largest nonprofit in the U.S. dedicated to the art of puppetry and knowing kind of Jim Henson's connect, connection to puppetry. I think that we were a we're a good fit. So we have the largest collection, but the Museum of Moving Image in New York also has pieces. And obviously New York was his home and Sesame Street and everything was based there. So I think it's lovely they have some stuff. And there's also some pieces at the Academy Museum in LA. So, and the Smithsonian in DC. So he was from the Maryland area. So I think the family did a really lovely job making sure that his collection was spread across places that made sense to kind of Jim's legacy. Hmm. Kelsey, I read your background is in history. How did your studies inform your work with the museum and the Center for Puppetry Arts? Yeah, so I think I, like many people who end up in the field of kind of related to puppetry, kind of fell into it. So I'm an Atlanta native. I was a Georgia State graduate and then went to graduate school in D.C., at American University and was looking to return home after finishing. And at the time there was a collections manager position open at the center. And so I applied and happened to get it. And, you know, in museum jobs, you kind of take what you can get. You you can't be too picky because we're a tight field and just kind of fell into it. And then it was again, during this time, a really incredible change with the expansion and things like that. And um, my boss at the time left and I was promoted to museum director and so really got to oversee the expansion project and just really fell in love with the field and fell in love with the community. But I do think that kind of my work and background as a historian definitely affects things. You know, as a historian, you have a really traditional background in research in particular and kind of archival research. And then the public history background of kind of the hands-on technicalities of making sure you're caring for the collection properly and all of that. And so I was definitely, I've, I've definitely been able to bring that to the job. And what you present at the Center for Puppetry Arts is not only popular culture, it is culture and art deservedly at the highest level. Absolutely. I mean, Henson alone, if you look at some of the pieces, um, I mentioned that we have stuff on display from Emmett Otter. And I mean, those puppets have even the pieces that might just be kind of like prop pieces or like background characters you know, they have full hand knitted sweaters and scarves and undershirts and little shoes. Um, I mean, the, the detail is just crazy. And then when you look at our global collection, it's it's very much so the same where you have people working with such different varieties of materials and mediums. And so, yeah, it's, it's really been a, it's really been a privilege to be able to work with a collection. The entire museum is transformed into a winter wonderland now. How would you describe the overall seasonal experience for visitors now? Yeah, so we are very jolly at the Center for Puppetry Art. We were kind of joking this year that we went, we have a big Halloween family event that was the weekend right before Halloween, and then we're closed on Mondays, and on that Monday, we just totally transformed to Christmas Town. So Lots of Christmas trees, lots of fun lights, and all sorts of festiveness. It's also really fun this time of year because we have so many family audiences. And for kids in particular, this is just a really special time of year. So it's really fun to see them come and be excited about seeing the show and getting to make their puppet and go through the galleries and all that good stuff. Speaking of special, the center is inclusive 
in the way it accommodates differently abled people. Would you talk about some of your special performances? Yeah, so we're actually about to have American Sign Language show of Rudolph, which is exciting. But we also do a lot of sensory-friendly programming. So for most of our main stage shows, we'll pick a Saturday or Sunday of the month where we have an ASD day. And really, that's just making sure that we provide an inclusive space for ASD families. That being autism spectrum. Yes, autism spectrum families. And so just making sure they know that they're welcomed and the lights aren't totally off in the theater. Kids can have snacks and can stand up and down a little bit more than what we would usually usually encourage in our in our non-ASD shows. Lighting is adjusted in the gallery. We have quiet areas and fidget toys available. Um, and honestly, like at the fidget toys and headphones and things like that, we just have available every day for any of our patrons who might need some, need some assistance. So we really do try to be an, an inclusive organization. From a financial standpoint, we also serve a lot of Title I schools through field trips. So that's another big initiative of ours to make sure that everyone can come and have, have an arts experience at the center. Kelsey Fritz from the Center for Puppetry Arts. The museum's Festive Features exhibition is on view through January 8th. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, our series highlighting local visual artists Speaking of art, today featuring cuckoo clock creator Jody Davis. But first, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and right now we're fundraising in order to keep bringing you interesting stories just like the one you heard about the Center for Puppetry Arts new exhibition. I'm joined by City Lights music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart, to give you yet another reason to donate this morning. Scooter, take it away. Good morning. Right now, when you give to support City Lights, we are entering your name into a drawing to win a $100 City Winery gift card. For full contest rules, go to wabe.org slash contest rules. You can also give us a call at 678-553-9090. And as we close 2022, we'd like to remind you of a few of the stories we've been able to share with you on City Lights. Conversations such as the one I had with Atlanta artist Joseph Vesey, who illustrated the city's hip-hop scene in an Atlanta rap map. Or when I spoke with the king of rant, comedian Louis Black, who's really a sweetheart, ahead of his Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center performance, we've been able to bring you in-depth conversations with local and national creatives thanks to donations from Atlanta-area listeners like you. And as we step into 2023, we still need your help. Please take a moment to give a year-end gift at wabe.org slash donate or call 678 578-5539090. Thank you. 
I'm Faith Saley of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, here with a short comedic observation from Atlanta's very own Dad's Garage. Hey, psst, hey, yeah, yeah. hey, it's me, the Grady Curve. Oh, hi, Grady Curve. Hey. Um, Guy stuck in my traffic? Yeah. yeah just yeah. sitting here? Yeah. Yeah. What you listening to? Just a little W-A-B-E. Yeah. Just imagine how boring it would be if you were sitting here without something to listen to like W-A-B-E. What do you mean? Stop it. I would hate my commute. All we're asking for is a little donation so you can have a little voice. Anything. What do you want? Your money. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, my debit Uh, card, uh, my credit card. Do I just put it in the CD player? No, okay, no, no. You can go online and donate to us so that these drives don't make you go crazy. Thank you so much. Grady Curve? Yeah? We're lucky to have you. Hey, watch these curves. (gasps) Wow. Wow. That fundraising moment was courtesy of Dad's Garage. Hey, Atlanta, supporting WABE really is important, and it is so easy. Here's how. You can make your donation with a call to 678-553-9090 or online at wabe.org slash donate. Think of all the times that you've been stuck, maybe not on the Grady Curve, but you've been stuck somewhere. (laughs) And WABE has made that moment of your life so much more bearable. Please help support those moments with a financial gift right now. Thanks again to the team over at Dad's Garage, Whitney Millsap, Freddie Boyd, and Tim Stoltenberg. Please take a moment to give right now at wabe.org slash donate. We look forward to hearing from more of you now. Have you considered making a one-time gift? If becoming a sustainer isn't in your budget right now, we totally understand. Giving because you want to help and you find value here is what matters. So please give your one-time gift now at wabe.org slash donate or by calling 678-553-9090. Your donation enables us to do what we do best. Thank you. Incidentally, your odds of winning that $100 City Winery gift are very good right now. When you give, you'll be supporting all of the interesting interviews and information that you get on City Lights. And you'll also be in on this drawing. So take just a couple of minutes to give a year-end gift at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. It's time now for our series, Speaking of Art, where we hear from local visual artists in their own words. My name is Jody Davis, and my art form is the cuckoo clock. Yes, I make real cuckoo clocks. My inspiration came from loving, absolutely loving, the clocks made in the 60s and 70s in Germany that were really kind of kitschy. But my idea was that we love cuckoo clocks. They're part of our history, and since I've been taking my mobile cuckoo clock gallery around, I know even more so how much that cuckoo clocks are knit into our culture. But they don't reflect our passions and interests. They don't really fit into our homes. And so that's what my cuckoo clocks are all about. It's Americana, everything from really modern stuff to very rustic. 
People ask me all the time, where do I get my ideas? And oh my gosh, they are limitless. I mean, with a cuckoo clock, you can do just about anything. And the limiting factor, of course, is that these have to operate. So if you want a cuckoo, it can't just be anywhere because the wire has to go around. And for any animation, it's got to be in specific places and it can only do so many things and there's only so much power. So I start in CorelDRAW. So I go in there and I'll take screen grabs of images and I'll draw things and everything, come up with something. And then I can lay it out all to scale and create the parts. I also do a lot of laser just because it's easier, but I also use a scroll saw, a band saw, I carve, I sculpt, I 3D print because I can scan things and 3D print. So I really use whatever really works for what I'm going to do. And I'm always learning new things. It's so fun because I can really do any art form on a cuckoo clock. I was born in Rhode Island and I never thought I would live in the South, but the joke was on me because when my husband at the time was moved to Atlanta, I came kicking and screaming, but I figured, eh, the company will move us again in four years, so it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I can, I can stand it for four years. Well, the, again, the joke was on me because we got divorced and there was nowhere else I wanted to live. When I think about how maybe living here has influenced my art, it's probably because I live and work on my farm. This really just, it inspires me, it grounds me, my horses, living with my horses, this wonderful husband I have now. I just can't imagine living anywhere else and making art anywhere else. I am very transparent on social media, Facebook and Instagram, um, and also YouTube, showing how I do things and how things work and what the, the process is. So please join me there. And also my mobile cuckoo clock gallery. I love to take it out because I park it, put down some steps. People can go in and they can see my clocks. It's like its own little world. And right now I'm working on some clocks, um, doing a line of Cuckoo for Georgia clocks. And I'm doing one for Stuckey's. I'm also doing Sea Rock City, which is really cool. And I'm working on some others. So um, come see me in my workshop here at the farm or invite my mobile Cuckoo Clock gallery somewhere. I'd love to show you the clocks. Cuckoo Clock artist Jody Davis. More information about the clocks that Davis creates is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. And if you are cuckoo for the programming on WABE, especially arts and culture on City Lights, why not donate now at wabe.org slash City Lights, or by calling 678-553-9090. Truly Living Well Center for Natural Urban Agriculture has a mission to bridge the gap between cultures and diverse backgrounds through food. Their programs and activities provide agriculture training, nutrition, education, and jobs for Atlantans. The Food Well Alliance is another organization which also supports local growers to connect and grow healthier communities. I spoke with Carol Hunter, the executive director of Truly Living Well, with J. Olu Boyu, director of programs 
and outreach at the Food Well Alliance, Carol began by telling me about the high-quality soil they use at Truly Living Well. Well, one of the things that we do um, at Truly Living Well and with so many other urban farmers is that we're growing natural and organically. And because of that, we make sure that there are no chemicals, no pesticides, no herbicides in our soil. The way we're able to make sure that happens is creating our own soil, taking natural products in our environment, taking that waste, and turn it into something truly wonderful. Um, truly Living Well was founded on that principle of the soil first and, and building up the soil. And from that, we've been able to grow thousands and thousands of pounds of food for our community. And that was one of the reasons we teamed up with Food Well Alliance in the very beginning. We were actually demonstrating how this wonderful composting was creating this healthy food, and we were then getting that to our community. It's so fantastic to hear this. And yet it also seems like such a no-brainer. I mean, when I look at a, a food label, for example, on something, frozen or prepared or a can and see things with Latin names and numbers, <laughs> you know, how does one even begin to create food from such synthetics? And here you are taking something perfectly natural and that's what's best. Well, when we think about, go back into our history, we used to eat directly from the land. So many of us in these urban environments, we moved away from that farmland, away from that life. And what we are promoting is that we can recapture that. We tell people, if you're even, if you're just growing in a pot on your patio, or you've got some space in your yard, begin to reconnect with the soil, begin to grow something. Um, so many of our children don't know where their food comes from. Right. So even as a small demonstration of saying this is the source of that food, it's a great teaching tool. It's also a healing tool when you get your hands into the, <laughs> the dirt. Um, so we just encourage people to reconnect with the land. Tell us about Truly Living Well's College Town Farm. Our College Town Farm is located at 324 Lawton Street on Atlanta's west side in the Ashview Heights community. Um, it's just about seven minutes off of the I-20 corridor, um, so it's very easy to get to. But we've got about five acres there that we are actually doing urban farming. We demonstrate food growing in raised beds, in ground. We've got a hillside, a grow house, a greenhouse, um, and a composting operation. Both of your organizations, Truly Living Well and Food Well Alliance, focus on urban agriculture. How do the goals differ for urban communities? So at Food Well Alliance, we are a local collaborative of leaders who are working to build thriving community gardens and farms. Um, our belief is that food is a tool to build community and that thriving communities and gardens strengthen the hearts of cities and, and, and other places and spaces. Um, urban agriculture is not something that has kind of a one-size-fits-all um, answer. Um, it is everything from growing in your backyard, growing from your balcony, um, shopping with local farmers at a variety of our farmers markets that take place throughout Metro Atlanta and throughout the country as a whole, 
Gardening and farming are primarily for those who have some land and the means to invest time and money in an uncertain outcome. Buying local organic produce is often much more expensive than buying produce at Walmart or at the supermarket. How are you working to bridge the gap of the high cost of farming and the high cost of buying locally farmed produce? Well, I'd love to approach that two ways. One of the things when we look at the cost of healthcare in our country, Ah, astronomical. So when you look at food as your medicine, eating fresh, healthy food. I I call food an intimate commodity because whatever you put in your mouth affects your total well-being. And so when we are putting the right things into our bodies, you will actually begin to decrease some of those other areas that, I mean, most of the diseases that are affecting us now are diet-related. So let's start with the diet. If we begin to eat a more healthy or consume more healthy food, then when you factor that into your costs, it begins to look a little bit differently. The other thing I like to tell people is that when we eat locally, you're also supporting our local economy. So when you buy food locally, you're also supporting local farmers in your community. Carol Hunter is the executive director of Truly Living Well Center for Natural Urban Agriculture with Jay Olubayewu, director of programs and outreach at the Food Well Alliance. More information about these organizations is on our website, wabe.org. This is City Lights on listener-funded 90.1 WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes with City Lights music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart. And a quick reminder that giving a few dollars will help us bring you interesting stories and provide context to what's happening right here in Atlanta. And with just minutes to go, we've got yet Another good reason to give now. Yes, that's because you will be entered into a drawing to win a $100 City Winery gift card with just minutes left in this hour. Remember, it just takes a moment to give a year-end gift at wabe.org slash donate. Hey, it's Kenny Malone from NPR's Planet Money. To understand intellectual property, our show recently acquired a real 1940s superhero named Microface. Just a microphone on, on a the face. face. Yeah, the like face. You, you get it. You get it. Yeah. Okay. Microface can fight crime and bad economics, but he does not have the superpower of sustaining membership. You can have that ability and join the public radio superhero universe. Here's how. Join the Public Radio Superhero Universe with your gift at wabe.org slash donate or with a call to 678-553-9090. We are delighted to hear from the Planet Money team and appreciate all the smiles that come with their creative ways of trying to help us understand complex financial issues. You're a WABE super fan? Well, why not donate right now? 
give a year-end gift at 678-553-9090 or by calling 678-553-9090 or online at wabe.org. Thank you. WABE counts on listeners for financial support. We use it to pay for shows you love, like City Lights. Metro Atlanta provides our largest source of funding, about 90%, in fact. So please help us continue to amplify the voices of Atlanta and chip in what you can. We understand if it's a one-time gift. Anything you can afford to donate is greatly appreciated. Please give online at wabe.org donate or call 678 678- Five five three ninety ninety, And with just moments left in City Lights, remember, when you give, your name is being entered into a drawing to win that $100 City Winery gift card. Please take a few minutes to give a one-time year-end gift or commit to giving $10, $20 a month as a sustainer. Go online at wabe.org slash donate or please call 678-553-9090. Senior producer for City Lights is Kim Drove. Summer Evans and Jean Etter are our producers. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. And special thanks to Scott Stewart. Thanks to all of you for listening to and hopefully donating to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.